As we prepare our hearts to be in the word tonight, let's just wait upon the Lord in prayer and give him thanksgiving, give him an opportunity to speak to our hearts. One of the things that I enjoy about Wednesdays, it's kind of a, a reset. You know, hit the pause button. The, the week's going, things are happening at a rapid pace and a lot of times racing to get in here on Wednesday night and to be able to just sit and wait upon the Lord. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence with us, that you never leave us or forsake us. And we do want to take a moment and to be still, to recognize that you're God, to know that you're God. We give you our praise and thanksgiving. Thank you for your unending love. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for joy and sorrow, sweetness and pain. We desire that you would speak to us tonight, that you would refresh us, convict us. Would you speak to us even now as we wait upon you? Father, we ask for your blessing on kids' ministry tonight and as they do boxcar night, that it would just be a night of joy and celebration and Lord that you'd bless youth ministry junior high and high school and pour out your spirit protect them from the enemy and bless our time in your word in Jesus name amen well how did you do in jubilee this week anybody have any celebrations anything where you stepped out of the box and maybe got some ice cream when you normally wouldn't or ways to enjoy the Lord or, or stepped out and said, we're, we're going to have some fun here. So I think we need to hear that message over and over again to celebrate in the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord, to, to have ways of uh, really celebrating him. So, so press into Jubilee. I, I do think it's a spiritual discipline. You, you, I know it is for me. It's easy to fall in that serious lane of life. How many uh, serious conversations have you heard today? Right? How many joyful conversations have you heard today? Not too many, right? So allow the joy of the Lord to, to be your strength. Tonight we're wrapping up the book of Leviticus, and so the title of the message is In Conclusion. It's the last two chapters of the book of Leviticus, uh, where Moses is challenging the children of Israel to walk in obedience. And one of the things that we see in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, is it was a relationship with God that is based on your performance. If you do these things, you're going to be blessed. But if you disobey my word, then you're going to be cursed. And remember, we have to read the Bible in context, Genesis to Revelation. And we know the Old Covenant is leading us to the finished work of the cross, where now all of the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen. And we're blessed by God, not because of what we do, but because Jesus died on the cross. So remember that as we study through this. But is obedience important in our lives? Yes, it is. God would want us to, to walk in obedience, but the motivation is completely different. We're not obeying to try to earn or deserve God's favor or his, his blessing, 
We're wanting to live our lives in obedience because we've already received his blessing. We've already received his grace and the forgiveness of our sins. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 26. You shall make no idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. This was the Achilles heel for the children of Israel, was idolatry. There was idolatry in Egypt. They're warned about idolatry coming into this promised land to not bow down to the gods of the the Canaanites, but that's exactly what got them, was idolatry, and setting up these carved images. And God really begins with the heart of the issue. He's saying, I want your worship. I want your love. I, I want your adoration. And it's easy for idolatry to come into our hearts and in our lives, to allow something to take the place that should only belong to the Lord, that throne that belongs to him and that attention that belongs to him. And sometimes idols are sinful things and other times idols are good things, but they're in the wrong place. We can even put family and ministry above the Lord. We can put our goals above the Lord, but God really does desire to have that first place uh, in our lives. In verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I'm the Lord. Rest is a practical way to worship and trust the Lord. Under the old covenant for the children of Israel, they were to hold the Sabbath from a strict sense. As we think about worshiping the Lord, having rest in our rhythm, in our routine, is a way of worshiping the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and you keep my commands and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. So God's saying to the children of Israel, specifically during this time, you walk in obedience, I'm going to give rain. And that rain's going to produce crops, and that's going to provide blessing for you. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. God providing harvest and God providing security. I will give peace on the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will ride the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. God promising as they obey to give peace and security where they're not in a place of fear, where they're able to rid the land of, of evil beasts and also from enemy evaders from war that would come into the land. Verse 7, you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall, your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. There's amazing stories in the Old Testament of God providing victories for the children of Israel. From David and Goliath to Gideon to God sending an angel to kill the Amorites. Many times when the children of Israel were outnumbered and there was no physical way for them to win, God showed up as they depended upon the Lord. Verse 9, for I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. Nothing like having God's favor towards you. Nothing like having God's smile towards you. And it's important for you to know what causes God to have his favor towards you. 
Is it your works? Is it because you were obedient? Or was it because of your faith in what Christ has done for you? Ultimately, the favor of God flows into our lives because of faith in what Jesus has done. So we get to obey because we've received his smile, not because we're trying to earn his smile. See the difference? He's already given you his favor. He's lavished his love on you, and we get to live out of that that place. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. You ever had to clear food out of the refrigerator because you were able to buy more groceries and the old groceries hadn't even worn out yet? But, but there's just not room for it. You're like, this has got to go. We're not eating this. We got to make room for what we're going to eat. That's the kind of blessing that God was going to give to the children of Israel is by the time that they had eaten the old harvest, hadn't even finished the old harvest, they'd have to clear it out because the new harvest was coming. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. This is the top of God's blessing for the children of Israel as they walk in obedience, is that God is with them. His presence is with them. He's tabernacling among them. He put his tabernacle, his presence in the midst of them, and he'll be their God. Jesus dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt uh, among us. Jesus promised, I will never leave you or, or forsake you. In verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. God reminds him, look, I have set you free. I, I set you free from Egypt. I set you free from bondage so that you could walk with me. So we try to evaluate obedience in our lives. We try to figure this out and say, well, I'm not obeying to try to earn or deserve God's favor, but is obedience important? And is it important to walk in God's ways? Absolutely. Because as we walk in God's ways, it affects our fellowship with God. And that's what John taught us in 1 John. He says that Jesus is light. And if we say that we walk in darkness and we have fellowship with the light, then we lie. Because God doesn't fellowship with darkness. And we've all noticed this. When we find ourselves in a place of sin, in a place of compromise, there isn't that closeness with the Lord. God hasn't left us. He hasn't forsaken us. It's not that we lost our salvation or we're not his children. But when we're in that place of sin, we're not in that place of intimacy with the Lord. And so the Lord's drawing us back to that place, calling us out of darkness to to be with him. Obedience is a way of, of worshiping the Lord. Obedience is a way of, of saying, Lord, I'm thankful because of what you have done for me. Romans 12:1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. So based on God's mercy and his kindness, that we would respond and say, Lord, I, I want to live for you. I want to walk in your, your statutes. And I suggest to you this evening that God's love results in more obedience than God's law. When it's like, here's all the do's, you've got to do, 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 and if, if you don't do the do, do, then you don't get the blessings, but if you do do the do, do, then you get the blessings. And in this law-based relationship with the Lord, very heavy, it's a huge burden, but when we really understand 
the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the acceptance of God, that I simply get to respond to that and love the Lord. I get to respond to that and to walk it in his ways. It does lead to a greater holiness in our lives. We don't see the law working for the children of Israel. We don't find a generation that walk with the Lord. We don't find too many kings that didn't fall into idolatry and lead the children of Israel into idolatry. So here's the warning to the children of Israel. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant. See this turning in the nation of Israel? It's this hard heart towards God. It's not simply falling short, but it's one of despising God's word, despising his statutes, hating God's judgments, and breaking God's uh, covenant, then this is how God responds. And I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. So the opposite of being able to stand strong in battle. No one's even chasing them and they're running away in fear. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. God's purpose for the punishment is to bring about obedience. So the Lord is saying, okay, here's the level of consequences. If you don't respond in repentance and coming back to me and walking my ways, then I'm going to up the consequences seven more times. I'll break the pride of your power. I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. So God is humbling them. God's resisting their pride. God's good at resisting our pride. The pride is that source of that arrogance and disobedience to God. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Working, toiling, working, toiling, no fruit. Why? They've disobeyed the Lord. They've rejected the Lord. They've thought, we don't need the Lord. We can just work harder. And if we work harder, then we can produce the fruit. And God's saying, no, I'm going to Resist, I'm not gonna bless with rain. I'm not gonna provide for you because you've walked away from me. God's trying to draw them back. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. The discipline keeps getting greater. I will also send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number and your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I'll bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall... Bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, if you do not obey me, 
but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. All of this leads to the nation of Israel needing Jesus to die for their sins. This process of Israel walking away and God punishing and Israel walking away and God punishing never brought them to the place of repentance and and walking with the Lord. And it shows through the Old Testament why we need a Savior, why we need Jesus to die for our sins. If rules could save us, if rules could transform us, if, if discipline would do the work in our lives, then we wouldn't need Christ to come in and die for our our sins. Verse 29, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters because things get so so difficult. And I will destroy your high places, God dealing with the idolatry, cut down your incense altars and cast your carcass on the lifeless forms of your idols and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I'll bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. God is long-suffering. This is exactly what happened to the nation of Israel is they were taken captive. Taken by the Babylonians in 486 BC. How long did God wait? 490 years. (laughs) Remember last week when we studied every seventh year the land was to rest. Well, the children of Israel didn't do that. So God allowed and he waited for 490 years. Then the land got its rest for 70 years. But God in his grace brought them back into the land. God was faithful to his word with the nation of Israel. They disobeyed the Lord. They walked away. And under these old covenant rules, then then God brought the correction and brought the discipline upon them. In verse 35, as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time is not for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts, into the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. So one of the ways that God corrected the nation of Israel is they just had a faint heart. They lost their strength. They, they lost their courage to where they were fearful of a a blowing leaf. What if that was part of God's correction on the United States? We lost courage. We lost fear. Or we gained fear and lost courage. There's a blowing leaf and we're in the house hiding, right? Could, Could possibly be because where does courage come from? It comes from knowing the Lord. It comes from walking in truth. It comes from drawing near to his heart. Verse 37, they shall stumble over one another, as it were, before a sword when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity, 
in your enemies' lands, also in their father's iniquity, which were with them, they shall waste away. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, that they also have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember the land. And this is also exactly what took place. Nehemiah humbling his heart in captivity. Daniel humbling his heart in captivity. Owning their sin, and the sin of the nation, and asking God to be gracious to bring him into the land. So even though the old covenant is based on their works, if you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. There's still an element of God's mercy. True? Because they deserve to totally be rejected to totally be no more as a nation. God sends them into captivity, but he says, if you'll own your sin, if you'll own your guilt, if you'll repent of your sin, I'll remember your covenant and bring you back into the land. That, that's God's mercy and God's grace. God currently has not given up on the nation of Israel. That's God's mercy and God's grace. If God gave up on the nation of Israel, what hope would there be for us? So as we wrestle through this issue of obedience and and understanding salvation and favor comes through the finished work of the cross. But obedience is important. It affects our relationship with the Lord. There is consequences for our, our, our decisions. Is There is great healing and restoration as we keep short accounts with the Lord, as we confess our sin before the Lord and humble ourselves before him and, and turn from our sin. Then God comes and washes us from our sin and is able to build and, and restore in our lives. In verse 43, the land also shall be left empty by them, and they will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Isn't it hard to accept your guilt? Isn't it hard to be like, you know, I sinned. I sinned against God, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Usually there's some, well, but I had a bad day. You know, I, I sinned, but I didn't get a good night's sleep. But I, I've been really going through a lot of stress or think, things have really been getting to me. Well, well you kind of made me mad first, you know? You, you were being a butt so I could be a butt, but, but, but I'm sorry, right? It's hard to just own your guilt and just say, man, I, I'm a sinner, I sinned. God, would you forgive me? And ask the person that we've sinned against to, to forgive us. In verse 44, Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God, God's grace, his mercy, his unending love. But for their sakes, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt into the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. The timing of this is amazing because they haven't even got into the promised land yet. God's preparing them to get into the promised land, and he already knows that they're going to blow it, and they're going to blow it royally, and they're going to go into gross idolatry to the point where God has to discipline them, but he's already decided, I'm not going to give up on you. 
He's already decided, I'm going to bring you back into the land. It's amazing grace and mercy here. Verse 46, these are the statutes and the judgments and the laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Chapter 27 is a really interesting chapter. It's kind of obscure. If you made a commitment to God, said, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to serve you. And for some reason, you couldn't follow through with that commitment. Then you were to pay back that commitment financially, to pay a, a price of, of redemption. And we'll see that in these eight verses. And again, this is the law. This is the old covenant. This is Mount Sinai type of living. In verse one, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord, according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old to 60 years old, then valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it's a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if for five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. And if from a month old to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, if it's a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. But if he's too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the Lord and the priest shall shed a, set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed, then the priest shall value him. We've all made commitments that we haven't been able to follow through with and can get really discouraged in those moments. And the essence here in verse eight is, well, do what you can. Do what you can. Maybe you committed to be on the mission field and serve the Lord internationally, but weren't able to, to do that, support somebody else who can go. Do what you can. Maybe you vowed before God that I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and it's February, and you're like, I'm not on schedule. <laughs> I'm completely overwhelmed. Well, do what you can, you know. Don't get discouraged and say, well, I'm, I'm going to punt uh, completely. In verse 9, if it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one who exchanged for it shall be holy. This is the old switcheroo with God. So you got a good animal and a bad animal. Maybe God won't notice, so I'm going to give him the bad animal. If that's the case, you're supposed to go ahead and give God both. Experience that conviction of heart saying, yeah, God, I gave you the bad animal. I'm going to go ahead and offer the, the good animal to you as well. If the unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priests, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. So you give a sacrifice to the Lord, an animal to the Lord, and you're like, oh, you know, I want that animal back. 
That would have been really good for my herd. Well, you could get it back. You just have to pay the value plus 20% in order to get it back. Once again, I'm thankful that we're under God's grace, you know, not, not under God's law. Could you imagine tithing? And then you're like, Lord, I really need that money back. And the Lord's like, well, you can have it back. But when you are able to give, you got to add 20% to it. Be tough, wouldn't it? Verse 14. And when a man dedicates his house, this same principle is going to apply to homes and property as we read through, to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. If he who dedicated it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. So same idea, dedicate your house to the Lord, but for whatever reason you can't follow through with it, you pay the value price plus 20%. If a man dedicates to the Lord of a field of his possessions, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after Jubilee, the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. So if the dedication was in year 48 and year of Jubilee was year 50, then obviously the dedication wouldn't be worth as much because it's only two years. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it's released in Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be possession of the priests. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field when he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee. And he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was brought, to the one who owed the land as possession. And all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 giras to the shekel. The deeper principle here of redemption, here you have made a commitment, you can't follow through with it, so there has to be a redemption price that's paid, ultimately points to Jesus being the redeemer of our souls. As we've fallen short in sin in so many areas, the only way for that to be made right was to Christ to pay the price, where we're not bought with gold or silver, but we're bought with the the blood of Jesus. Verse 26, but the firstborn of the animals which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate, whether it's an ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. So you couldn't dedicate your firstborn of your flock to the Lord because it already belongs to the Lord. It's already his. In verse 27, and if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Unclean animal could be bought back with the value price plus 20% as well. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. 
If it's dedicated to the Lord, you couldn't redeem it back. You couldn't buy it back. No person under the ban whom may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. So if you did something that constituted death under the law, capital punishment, there was no opportunity to redeem that person. Aren't you thankful for Calvary? The wages of sin is death, but Jesus took the price for, for our sin. You guys hanging with me? So, we're not going to start a, babe, a buyback program here at RMC. So. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed or of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithe, he shall add one-fifth to it. So unable to give tithe and you want to give it later under the law, then you'd add 20% uh, to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock or whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. Under the rod was a way that the shepherd would count the sheep, and the tenth sheep belonged to the Lord, that, that 10% giving to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it, and if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy, it shall not be redeemed. So you're the shepherd, and you're like, okay, the tenth one goes to the Lord, so we're going to make sure the tenth one is sick, that our sick sheep is going to go under, and we're going to give that one to the Lord. And so that's called out there to make sure that that's not done. Verse 34, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Remember when the law was given? When Moses received the law of God on Mount Sinai the first time, what did he come down and find? The children of Israel had gotten a golden calf, had gotten Aaron to make a, a golden calf. We're worshiping this golden calf, saying this golden calf was what brought redemption from Egypt, engaging in all kinds of, of sexual sin. Moses, in his frustration, he throws down the Ten Commandments, which God had written with his, his hand. The law was broken before it was even given. I mean, this, this sounds pretty good as you read through it. Simple enough, right? If you do what you're supposed to do, then you're going to receive blessing. The heavens are going to open up. There's going to be peace and prosperity and, and protection in the presence of God. But if you don't do what you're supposed to do, then God's going to be contrary to you. God is going to oppose you. And before this was even given, it was broken. The Holy Spirit was given, and 3,000 people were saved. And we read in the New Testament where we're to walk in the Spirit, where the Spirit of God empowers us to be able to live a a holy life, an obedient life to the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit is love, singular, and then is defined by love and joy and peace and patience and, and gentleness and kindness. How far along do rules go to produce gentleness in our lives, to produce kindness in our life? But the Spirit of God, as we're, we're open to God's Spirit leading us and convicting us, we can quench the, the Holy Spirit. And as we look at this idea of obedience in our lives and go, well, where does this fit in our lives? Where does it fit under the new covenant? I get that 
God's love and favor and acceptance is through the blood of, of Jesus Christ. But yet the Lord's desiring that I would live obediently unto him, but, but I lack the power, is first the motivation of saying, God, I want to please you because of what you've done for me, but then humbling ourselves that we can't do it in our own strength. And I am still very much trying to figure out what this means to walk in the Spirit, what this means to rely on God's Spirit to be able to live out the Christian life and, and walk in obedience. I think it happens in such a way where if there's fruit that comes in our lives, we're quick to point to, it was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's what produced this love in my life. I, I couldn't produce this on my own. I couldn't conjure this up in my own strength. This is evidence of, of a living God in my heart and, and in my life. And these type of passages can either be very confusing or very discouraging or both. We just walk away and go, where's the application? Well, hopefully the application for us tonight is we realize the height and the depth and the width of what Christ has done for us. If it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, this would be the kind of relationship that we would be in with God. Where we didn't measure up, we've got to pay back. We didn't measure up, we could expect punishment. We can expect God to be contrary to us. But because of the blood of Jesus, we are robed in Christ's righteousness. We've received the inheritance of Christ. All of these amazing spiritual blessings that have happened because of our position in Christ. If you would think with me for the book of Ephesians for just a moment, and if it's been a while since you've, you've read it, it's a great book to meditate upon, is the first three chapters lay out the grace of God for us and who we are in Christ. And then chapters four through six really address Christian living or, or holiness as we understand the grace of God, the be comes before the do. I understand that I'm the child of God by grace. I understand that I'm seated with Christ in the heavens. I understand that all my sins are, are paid for. And out of this position of grace, then Christian living flows. We, we respond to the mercy of God depending upon the Holy Spirit. That's these two chapters. And then how about the book of Leviticus? It's been a while since we started the book of Leviticus. It's a bloody book, right? Lots of sacrifice for sin. And it points to Jesus, the sacrifice for our sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the sacrifice that's revealed through Leviticus. And also Jesus is the high priest. The high priest, but also the sacrifice the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. So though the book of Leviticus is a tough book to study, I hope it's deepened your rejoicing in Christ. I hope it's deepened the value of communion for you. I want to end tonight in uh, preparing us for a communion. If you would turn over with me into the New Testament, into 1 Corinthians, as we see God's uh, instruction for communion, 1 Corinthians 11. Starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus was instituting, giving communion, it was to Jewish disciples that understood the old covenant. It was to Jewish men who had studied Leviticus chapter 26 that knew their requirement under the law, knew the covenant that God had given to the nation of Israel that was based on their works. And here Jesus is saying, look, here's a new contract. Here's a new covenant. Here's a new way of having relationship with me, and it's in my blood. It's not in what you do, but it's in what I've done. (laughs) And Jesus says, I want you to do this often so you don't lose sight of this. I want you to do this often so you don't slip back into an old covenant type of mentality. This is your contract with God. It's based in the blood of Jesus. In verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I want you to stay with me with further instructions on communion because I think it ties into this issue of obedience. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So some people have chosen to not take communion because they go, I'm not worthy. But if you look Specifically, it says in an unworthy manner. What would an unworthy manner be? Not giving worth to the blood of Jesus. Just taking communion flippantly. So if you're in appreciation of Christ, if you're remembering Christ, if you're celebrating Christ, coming based on his worthiness, by all means take communion. In verse 28, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Well, why would we examine ourselves? Because in this new covenant relationship with the Lord, God wants there to be clean accounts. God wants to cleanse us. God wants to restore us. God wants to set us free from sin. And so it's let each person examine themselves, so let them come. So we examine ourselves, oh, there's this pride in my heart. There's this ungrateful spirit in my heart. There's this grumbling and complaining that's there and and the Lord's revealing it and so I'm confessing this to the Lord and I'm receiving his grace and forgiveness and so inside of this covenant of grace we also see God's heart for obedience and God's heart for walking in, in relationship with him. In verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So some are weak because they're not giving worth to the body of the Lord. They're not giving worth to the cup of the Lord. They're not not stopping and considering what Christ has done and keeping those short accounts with him. So with communion, we look back at the cross. We always remember this covenant of grace. We look within where there might be sin in our hearts and then we look ahead to when Christ is gonna return and we're gonna enter into the marriage feast of the Lamb. So tonight, enjoy the grace of the Lord.
Enjoy the new covenant relationship that we have with God. And in the midst of that new covenant relationship with him, may that birth an obedience in our lives, a living sacrifice in our lives where we're being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. So we're going to continue through the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, so you can start reading ahead. We're going to jump into Numbers next week. Father, we pray for wisdom. We pray that we could glean from these two chapters, that we would be brought to the foot of the cross, reminded of the new covenant. And as we spend tonight at the communion table, Jesus, would you meet us? May we celebrate your covenant of grace. May we look within and confess sin afresh in our lives and receive your forgiveness. We do desire to walk in holiness. We can't do it on our own. We pray for breakthroughs that will come through the power of your spirit for your glory. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.